All right, well, why don't we go ahead and turn our Bible to Mark chapter 12. I think this, is a, this will, three simple verses will equip you to learn how to share your faith, perhaps with a Muslim, perhaps with a Hindu, perhaps with people that have a hard time wrapping their mind around the fact that Jesus is both God and man. And he, ha- he has the ability to save the lost. So many of us uh, find it very difficult in an evangelism context to share our faith. I know that uh, even on our ride home from Tampa this, uh, this af- uh, yesterday in the afternoon uh, for our scouting trip, uh, we you know, receive surveys coming from you saying, hey, we, we need uh, to, to be equipped to learn how to practically share our faith even more. Uh, and, and so hopefully we'll be able to do a little bit of that uh, this morning. And then also tonight we'll be able to pray for the nations and be inspired to go, but uh, to be equipped also as well as we go out. So go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 12. We've been, uh, it's st- this whole entire thing started uh, with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes going ahead and kind of picking a fight, if you will, and to ask Jesus a question that would hopefully stump him to prove that he is not the Son of God, that he is not the Messiah. He couldn't possibly be, but then uh, they kept uh, realizing that they could not keep up with Jesus' answer, and then eventually they were, uh, it says they were amazed. It says that... uh, that no one even wanted to venture, it says in verse 32, no one even wanted to venture to ask him any more questions. They were silenced by his answer. And now he begins to get into the temple. He's teaching and he's saying this in verse 35. Jesus began to say, and he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Some, some, I, I remember reading this in college and being like, what in the world is going on here? It just sounds a little confusing, and hopefully we'll make a little sense out of it, and, and, and that will be used uh, as ammo on uh, an evangelism context because it's clear as day that Jesus truly is God and man. It says here, David, in verse 36, David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. And then verse 37, David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he called, is he his son then? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. And so many people had, we've gone over this for the last 12 chapters, that the Messiah uh, is the anointed one. Uh, He is the one uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit, uh, sent by God to go and save his people, uh, to deliver his people from the enemies. And fortunately, Israel, all of Israel, were... uh, I guess they were confused. They, they were misdirected. They were misguided. Uh, most of them thought that he was going to come and deliver them literally from their enemies, from the Romans, from, uh, from their, their oppressors. And so we see this, though, that they were right in that the, the religious leaders, the people were right, and that there would be, uh, the Messiah would come into David's line. It would come into being through David's line. That was clear. Everybody agreed with that, that uh, David's son would be the Messiah. It would be, uh, uh, most of them just thought it was going to be a human being, um, nothing more than that. 
It says in 2 Samuel 7, we're going to do a lot, of, a lot of scriptures this morning. So just if you can, write them down. You can look at them later because I think this will be helpful for you uh, to go over during this week and even in evangelism context so you can show people uh, that who Christ truly is. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 14 says, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you. I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I'll be a father to him who shall be a son to me. He's talking about Jesus. Uh, and during David's time, uh, David was a king. Uh, he was a mere human king. He would die. He would not resurrect from the dead. Of course, we know that. He's in the grave today. But there would be someone who would come after him that his kingdom will be established forever. And of course, we know who that is. That's the Messiah. Uh, also, it says in Psalm 89, 3 and 4, and 35 to 37, it says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant. When God swears something, he does not lie. He will see it to pass. God is not a liar, but every, every man is, right? I mean, Romans says that. Paul says that. So I've sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever his throne as the sun before me. So it's guaranteed. Amos 9.11 says this, that in the day, in that day, I will raise up the fallen booth of David. In Micah 5.2, you can write that down. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, this is the famous Christmas verse, right? For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. That's talking about Christ. That's not talking about a human being. Uh, no human being can, the whole government can rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. No human being that's ever been called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, no end is there will be no end to the increase of his government or, or of peace on the throne of David over his kingdom. It's very evident that the son of David is the Messiah and he will come and rule and reign. But they were misguided. So Jesus is saying here, going back to verse 35, he's, he's, he's giving them, he's answering their questions with a question. He's saying, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Uh, they know that. He, he, he's going to be the son of David. That's in the Old Testament. They knew that. And it says, David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, capital Lord, said to my capital Lord, right? And it, that's why you need the NASB, by the way. Uh, sit at my right hand until, in the capital M, sit at my right hand. This is, the, this, is Lord, this is God the Father speaking. Until I put your enemies beneath your feet. It's the coronation of Christ. We're going to get to Psalm 110 in a second here. But David himself calls him Lord. Lord God, capital L. So in what sense is he his son? How can he be both, this, the Messiah be both David's son and also David's Lord? How can that be? One speaks of his humanity. People recognized Jesus as the son of David. Matthew 9, 27, two blind men were following him. Remember he says, have mercy on me, the son of David. Also, Matthew 12, 23, a Canaanite woman cried out, have mercy on me, Lord, the son of David. Even the lost recognized who Jesus truly was and is. Matthew 21, 9, shouting Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he. They were correct. 
and that the Messiah would come through the lineage of David. Joseph was Jesus' uh, father, earthly father, Mary, the mother, both from the lineage of David. And so no one can refute that. Um, it's irrefutable. I mean, that genealogy was put there. It's kind of boring, right? Matthew 1. I mean, we, I'm sure maybe in some of your quiet times, you've passed through that, right? Just really quickly, didn't even read all the names. Come on, let's be honest. Just, just flew through that. But that's a weighty passage. And every dot and tittle, jot and tittle in your Bible is inspired. It's, it's necessary. It's, it's, a, it's used to, to transform your life. And so as you look at the genealogy, it's, it's pretty clear that the Messiah came from David's lineage. But that wasn't enough. That's not enough to save a man, to, to know that, okay, this Messiah, you know, Jesus is coming as a man, but he's also came, he also came as God. And so as we move along, uh, it says here that David, in, in, uh, what is it, in Matthew it says that David said this in the, the power of the Holy Spirit. So David is saying this in Psalm 110. It's the, the most powerful, if you go ahead and turn there, because we're going we're gonna to look at that in a second. But it's one of the most powerful Psalms in our Bible. It's quoted 27 times in the New Testament, this Psalm. It's the most quoted Psalm in the whole New Testament as well. So Psalm 110 It's a messianic psalm. And David is saying, it says here in Acts 1.15, David said this by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the mouthpiece of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus, it's interesting. I want to just, I don't really have necessarily any points, you know, 1.1.2.3. But if you want to jot that down, this, that Jesus used the Bible in evangelistic context. He used the Bible. When I was in seminary the first time, uh, when, uh, back in 2005 to 2007, I was around 23 to 25 years old, and they would send us out. What I loved about Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, uh, they would send us out. They would, uh, after we'd have class, they would send us out and to go share the gospel. And then we'd also do this, what was called service in the city. So we'd serve the city, we'd feed the poor, but we'd also go out and share the gospel two by two, just like we do today. And they would send us out in what was called Little India. And we would go there and, and you know, they, they, uh, it was a fun place. I mean, good food and it smelled amazing, you know, and as you walked around the streets uh, and we would talk to people, we would nudge people on the streets. We'd say, uh, we would be bold and we'd say, Jesus is the son of God. He's the only way. John 14, 6. I don't know how many times I've quoted that passage. It's one of my favorite passages in college. And I would say, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the father. In other words, no one has eternal life. No one goes to heaven apart from Christ, apart from him. Clear, right? Clear as day. And they would say, yes. Of course. I was like, well, I'm the greatest evangelist. And then, you know, it would just, then my bubble would be popped right after. No, no, no. Jesus is one of many, 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 many gods. No, 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 no. You understand? Jesus is the only way. No, 365 million gods. 
and Jesus. Ah! It would drive me crazy. <laughs> and also burden my heart. And, but I love this, that Jesus, Jesus would go to the scriptures. He kept going to the scriptures. I, it, every time they, they would come back and say, look, no, no, no. I would say, no, no, no. Here's what it says in the Bible. Be careful of the, the apologetics that just use human reasoning. So many people are looking to tell an, uh, an unsaved person, right, that some sort of scientist, some sort of professor, someone with a PhD, right, affirms the Bible, the Bible is true because this secular guy found something in the dirt. It doesn't matter what they find. It doesn't matter if they find the Ark of the Covenant. It doesn't matter if they find the Ark, literally, the, the Noah's Ark. Although it's awesome to affirm, it, it, is, it, it always warms my heart when I read something in the news that says, man, they found something. It's wonderful. That's great. But that isn't our apologetic. That isn't our message. Unleash the word of God. It is the power of God to save humans. Lost people. It wasn't, it wasn't some secular scientist that knocked Paul off his horse. It was Jesus Christ himself, right? It, it, we, we, are not, we are not banking on secular people to find out that God is somehow true. And now it's like, hey, he must be true. Why? Awesome. That puts me on a more of a foundation. No, no way. I kept going back to the word of God. Did people get saved? Did the results matter? No, I'm not going to tell you my scorecard in college. It doesn't matter. What matters is I was faithful to the word of God. And what matters to you in Rome, what matters to you on campus, what matters to you in Tampa, what matters to you wherever you go, you unleash the word. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I don't care what anyone else says. Period. At the end of that sentence. And so let's read Psalm 110. Because I think this will be really encouraging in an evangelistic context. Because I know many of you want to reach Muslims. Many of you want to reach Hindus and, and people of different nations that have different religions, atheists. The word of, it's interesting, Jesus went back to the word of God. He said, David, that the New Testament writers understood that David was the mouthpiece of the Holy Spirit. Jesus understood that. 2 Timothy 3.15 and 17, you've read that so many times, you've memorized that. All scripture is God breathed, Right? 2 Peter 1, 19 to 21. It's not just secular scientists that we need to prove the Bible. But also uh, 2 Peter 1, 19 to 21 also says that you don't need your experience to prove the Bible. That, that Peter was on the, the mountain of transfiguration, right? And he's, he's saying, he's like, look, I was there. You weren't, I was there. But I'll tell you what's more sure. You can listen to me based on the fact that I was on the mountain, I saw Jesus glowing like the sun. I mean, that's amazing. I mean, I, I know you've never experienced that. I've never experienced that. 
People say they see angels all the time and they're like, man, I saw, I see angels and stuff. It's like, no, you haven't. Because if you haven't peed your pants and you're not laying on the ground, you haven't seen an angel. That's the test. It's in the Bible. Maybe not the peeing your pants, but (laughs) I would imagine though one would. (laughs) But you don't need your experience. You don't need to like, I mean, you share your testimony. You could give, uh, you know, the few excerpts in the apologetic book that you read. Uh, You could tell uh, about some article you read in archaeology. But you unleashed the lion. And you, you need to unleash the Bible. And here, here's, the, here's the deal. I know that through surveys, maybe you're saying, I'm not equipped. You're not equipped because you don't know the Bible. And I can't really do that for you every day. It's, it's, it's as easy. I mean, we could have, we could have a, a million tracks just laid out here and you could find your favorite. But the Bible trumps that. The Bible trumps archaeology. The Bible trumps your experience. The Bible trumps any little human strategy that we might have in Rome. I got to become an expert at Catholicism. No, you don't. You need to become an expert of the Bible. You, You don't need to be intimidated. God did not create people to go out on the streets intimidated of the lost. We go confidently. We go boldly. That's how we go. We go confidently, it says in Isaiah 55, because we've tasted that bread in which didn't cost us anything. We go with what? His glory on us. We could call someone, hey, you over there. Hey, you, the person I don't even know. Come over here. I want to tell you something about Jesus. You're calling people you don't know and they come and they hear the word of God and they obey it. And you're like, well, how in the world did that happen? certainly wasn't me. No, it's the Lord doing something through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's taking his word and making it real to someone's life. That's incredible. You need to know the Bible. And we're going to take you on a wild ride right now through Psalm 110, because it is a powerful passage that shows who Jesus truly is. I make an argument that you need to know the Bible, but you also need to know who Jesus is. You need to know who the Christ is. And you cannot be saved. You cannot, you, you, you cannot share the gospel without being saved. I mean, you could, just, it's just words. And I suppose someone could get saved, and people have. I, I've heard stories of even pastors getting saved in the pulpit with their own message. Professors tell me that in, in, in class, I was, I was blown away, but they know of pastors that have been saved in the pulpit. They walk, they walk up unsaved, they leave saved. Amen. That's great. By the way, I, I believe I'm saved. I, I could get saved. I could get saved through this message. That would be wonderful if I was not. Now all of a sudden I am. Um, I suppose that could be possible for you to do, but, but that, would be, that would be sad in that you would experience Matthew 7, 21 to 23 and say, Lord, Lord. And he would say, why do you call me Lord? You don't do you don't do what I've told you to do. You, you haven't obeyed. You've, you've done all these things like heal the sick and cast out demons and do miracles, et cetera, prophesy, all those things, but you practice iniquity. In other words, you swim in sin your whole life. You get out of the pool on Sunday morning and then you go back in the pool of sin on Monday. 
If that's the pattern of your life, you're not saved. That can be more clear in the scripture. Now, Psalm 110, what is Jesus doing? So he takes them back to the Bible because they didn't have Bibles in the New Testament. They, 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 didn't have, they didn't have New Testament scriptures in the New Testament. They only had 39 books of the Old Testament that were affirmed by Jesus, by the apostles, by the teachers. It, it ter- a scripture interprets scripture. It is inspired. It's sufficient. Jesus knew that. And he lived that out by modeling that, uh, that I'm not just going to answer you with what I think, although we all would care to know what Jesus thinks, and that would become scripture if someone wrote that down. But he's saying, look, I'm going to go back to what you know. Verse one, it says this, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What is he saying? What is this? This is the coronation of the king. This is David. He's, he's, he's writing this down, but He's watching something. He's watching the Father God coronate his son, Jesus. He's saying, you are king. He is the king. He is the ruler of the world. Listen to him. This is actually a really big deal. David witnessed, I mean, can you imagine witnessing this? He saw it in his mind's eye. He witnessed this. He saw the Father God in heaven speak to his son, You are the Lord. Sit here at my right hand. Come and sit with me where we rule and reign until I make your enemies a footstool. So what is this saying? At the time, two days later, Jesus is gonna go die for sinful man. And there's gonna be a waiting period from the time he dies, he resurrects from that time 2,000 years ago till now and in even years to come. There's, he is in one sense ruling, but not really. And, and, and it's not yet fully realized that Jesus is ruling and reigning in the millennial kingdom and then all throughout eternity. That's the already not yet tension. Uh, maybe you've heard that said with theologians. That's a big deal. So we're in the middle, right? We, we've, we see the cross over here. We know that that's happened. It's a historical event through the scriptures. You know that. But then also, as it says, even in the Old Testament prophets, the uh, New Testament, and then the book of Revelation speaks of a time where Jesus is gonna physically rule and reign with us on the earth. So we will be, well, we're gonna get to the end time soon in the next couple of chapters, but just like a sneak preview, there's going to be a literal thousand year reign where Jesus rules and reigns on the earth with us. We get to rule with him. That's going to be amazing. I can't even, I, I can't even conceive like, like a hundred years, let alone a thousand. I, I can't wrap my head around that. That, I mean, I, I've lived for 40 years and I'm like, you know, it doesn't really seem like that long, but then I, as I think in my childhood day, I'm like, man, that feels so long ago. What is a thousand years gonna feel like? That's crazy. But that's exactly what it says in the book of Revelation. They were gonna rule and reign with him. And he's gonna physically rule over his people. Then in, uh, it says here in Joshua 10, 24 to 26, that uh, it, this, back in ancient times when they would, subdue their enemies, they would, 
they would have the, the, their enemy would be laying down, right? Maybe with a spear in their side or a heart. And they would put their foot on top of their neck. And it would just be symbolic of like, we have conquered the enemy. And so this is exactly what is going on here in heaven. And, and the Father God is saying, there's going to be a day. Now listen, when you die on the cross, it says in Colossians, when you die on the cross and you resurrect from the grave, you're going to make a mockery of Satan. You're going to have, you've, you've subdued the powers of the enemy in one sense, right? But not yet fully because all your enemies are going to be those kings and those rulers and the, every single soul who's ever lived who've rejected Christ, his foot is going to be on their neck in the end and make sure it's not yours. It's very clear in scripture who the Christ is, who, who the father is, is saying, who Jesus truly is. He will be a conqueror of the enemies. And he goes on and on and on about this. Verse two says, the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion saying this, rule in the midst of your enemies. What is he saying here? Zion speaking of Again, the 10,000, uh, the 1,000 year reign and, and, and symbolic of Jerusalem, symbolic of God's people, symbolic of heaven in the scriptures. <clears throat> Excuse me. What is he saying here? He says, the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion saying what? What is he saying? What is he, what is he saying here? That you're enthroned, now rule. You're enthroned, now rule. And he's saying, convert the lost, build the church, answer prayer, Judge the nations for their sin. He's saying, you have authority to do that. He has authority to save sinners. He has authority to answer prayer. He has authority to forgive sin. He has authority to build the church. And what's crazy is he's saying, all authority that's been given to me, I now give to you. Go and make disciples. Build my church. Forgive one another. That's awesome. That's incredible. He is a guarantee, now that he has the guaranteed rule of Messiah over the, over the enemies, he's going to crush them eventually. Genesis 49.10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff between his feet. To him shall be the obedience of his people. Psalm 2.9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and shatter them like earthenware. I love Psalm 2. If you ever look at the, the headlines and, and look at the bad guys, they're winning. Just turn to Psalm 2. Their little scheme isn't going to last, is it? In fact, it says the father laughs at them. He laughs at their schemes. So why in the world would we as Christians want to be on the side of the enemy? Why would we want to give in to sin? It says in Romans 6, look, you've been saved from the slavery and the bondage of sin. Your master is not sin. Your master is not the devil. Your master is Christ. So therefore live righteously. That's incredible, isn't it? Verse three, listen to this. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. What does it mean to volunteer people? It means when we know who Christ is, when we know who he is and we proclaim who he is, people will volunteer into his army. And it looks like we all have, right? He's looking for volunteers to be in part of his army so that he can rule and reign with him. The day of power is the day of salvation. That's what it says here. 
Your people will volunteer freely in the day of power. And some translation says an army. It says that they will become an army. We are an army. The church is an army and God is saving people to put them into an army so that one day the, arm, the, the battle of Armageddon, as you read in, the, uh, in Revelation, he will just by his sheer breath, this, I mean, it's like the, like I just think like Hollywood special effects. He just talked and like all these people just are done, eliminated, game over. You might be thinking, what are the practical application of this? It's offering you perspective. It's offering you a high view of God. That's what we want to preach. Not every passage has, it has implications, thousands of implications as you listen to who Christ is because there's a track in Psalm 110. If you like, you can just print it out and put it in your back pocket. Pick it and take it out. This is, this is who Jesus is. Which side do you want to be on? I mean, people can understand that, right? This is a multiple choice question. Read Psalm 110. Which side do you want to be on? Christ, that's choice A. B, the enemy's side. That's pretty easy, right? That's a pretty cool track. I just made that up now. No charge, zero dollars right? You need to know your Bible. You need to know who Christ truly is. You need to know who you're meeting with in the morning. Who are you meeting with? You meet with the king. You meet with a high priest that can forgive your sin. You meet with the ruler of the world. So much talk about the, the Apple CEO and people are like, I'm going to get rid of my iPhone. I'm going to get, I mean, you know, I'm going to go like under, uh, I'm going to live uh, under, uh, you know, outside the grid, right? Because, uh, you know, all the craziness that's going on in the world. I mean, people like, people are crazy. Building underground bunkers. You're going to hide from the Lord. He's sovereign over the earth. And that should give us great comfort as we read the newspaper. Great comfort as we scroll online looking at news articles. I want you to do me a favor. Every time you read a news article, here's something practical. Write this down. Every time you read a news article, just go into Psalm 110 and then go back to the news article. Okay? Psalm 2. Psalm 1. For every news article you read, read the Bible. Just, just make a count. I've read five newspaper articles. I'm going to read five Messianic Psalms. Amen? That's your track. That's your comfort. That's your, your guidance. It's your light. It's your food. It's your nourishment. We should never go out unequipped. The only way you're going to do that is if you don't know who Christ is and you don't know what the Bible says. It doesn't matter what they say. It matters what you know. You might be thinking, well, hey, look, what if they say something that I don't know? They say, I don't know. Joel Osteen is really good at saying that. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. No, you know. 
You know exactly what the Bible, and if you don't know, all you have to say is this. All you have to say is, you know what? I don't know, but you know what? Maybe this guy knows who's praying this whole time because God calls you to go out two by two. And if you're by yourself for every reason in a work environment or something, hey, you know what? Tomorrow, I'll, I'll get back to you. I'm gonna ask my pastor. I'm gonna ask the elders. I'm gonna, I'm gonna consult my study Bible at home and I'll get back to you with an answer. But you just don't wanna be humble. You don't wanna look like a fool to the world. That's the best thing that you can do. It's just say, you know what, I really don't know. But there is an answer because the Bible says there's an answer and I'm a student of God's word and there's always more for me to know about the scriptures. I'm gonna get back to you tomorrow. Or if, if it's an evangelism context overseas and you may not see them tomorrow, uh, give me your phone number and name or whatever email address and I will, I will contact you back and make sure you have an answer by tonight. That's humility. I don't, I, I've never heard a testimony in this church that anyone's ever done that before. I've never heard that. I just wonder how much that would soften the lost heart saying, you know what? These people, they care about me. They want to make sure they get the answer to me. And they're humble enough to say they're a student of God's word and there's still more to know about the Bible. Verse 5 Verse four, I should say, the Lord. Actually, I didn't even read all verse three. I'm so sorry. It says, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. So he's saying, he's saying this, your, your youth are to you. This is the, again, the father talking to the son. Your youth are to you as the dew. He's saying, you'll never lose your strength. You'll never lose your vigor. No matter what, you'll never grow old. You're never gonna die again. You're gonna rule and reign leaders get older and our president of the United States older and older and older and older and older, right? Jesus will never have a moment like that. Jesus knew what you did 39 days ago. He knew what you thought 150 days ago. He knows what you're going to do 555 days from now. He knows everything. And again, to the multiple choice question, Psalm 110, who do you want to be a part of? Christ's kingdom or the world's kingdom? That's it. Literally, this is the easiest test you'll ever take, ever. It's it's a multiple choice question, not an essay. Jesus is not looking for all of your excuses. This is a multiple choice question. Do you know Christ? Yes or no? That's it. It's virtually all it is. And he knows whether you know him or not. Couldn't be more clear. Verse four says this, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. He's not going back on his word. Jesus is gonna rule and reign and that's final, period at the end of that. No one's gonna add to that. No one's gonna come in and, 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 and take his plan away and, and, and ruin his plan. No president of the United States, no, no scheme of, uh, of the, the World Economic Forum. Nothing will be able to change that word and that sentence in your Bibles. He will not change his mind, period. Jesus is going to rule over you for all of eternity, whether that's in heaven or hell. The devil won't rule over you in hell. No, God will rule over you in hell. He will rule and reign in every name that ever has lived in this world and earth. There was a leader that did not know God will be forgotten. They will not matter. 
they will be just like chaff that blows off. Where's the chaff? No one cares. That's what Psalm 1 says. And again, the multiple choice question is very clear. Do you want to stand with the righteous or the unrighteous? It's A or B. What is so interesting about this? You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. What is that? People can't even pronounce that word. I try spelling it in my, my, my word thing, you know, it just keeps correcting me. It's like I miss an I and E. It's got so many vowels and it, it, I don't even know what the heck's going on in that word. Poor guy, Melchizedek, Meli, Melchizedek. <laughs> just give him a nickname. <laughs> it's like Nebuchadnezzar, Nebi, you know. It's got like 80 Zs in his name, you know. So, so anyways, Melchizedek, why is this important? Because we've already proven here, the first so many verses here, is that Jesus is king. And now he's saying this, he's saying in verse 4, it's like shifted to a little bit. He's saying, you're going to be a priest forever. You're going to be a king forever. You're going to be a priest forever. What does that mean? It means that you don't ever have to worry. You can read every headline now in the news in the last 24 hours and know that God is ruling and reigning over the earth. He'll eventually subdue his enemies. But this, this little deal here, he said, you're gonna be a priest forever, meaning he can forgive sin and he will intercede for you forever. He's praying for you forever. You may not be like, oh, nobody really prays for me. I got one guy, one man that's praying for you right now for all of eternity. His name is Jesus. He is praying for you that you will make it to the end. That's what Hebrews is all about. That's what Hebrews is all about. You should read it. Hebrews 8 and 9. There's only one sacrifice. And why is this important that he must come from the order of Melchizedek? I'm just going to get a little theological on you. Just hold on. We are 30 seconds. And the order, he cannot be coming from the order of Aaron. Why? Why can't he come from the order of Aaron? No, sorry, Kai. You cannot just raise your hand in a Sunday service. That's more for ADS. <laughs> I know you know the answer. That's the thing. It could not be from Aaron because he must be eternal. He must come from the line of Judah. And Aaron did not come from the line of Judah, did he? No. And he, he's a king. He is to be a king. And priests cannot be kings. People got in trouble for that, right? Kings that went into doing the priestly duty, died, like on the spot. Why? They couldn't have blood, they, they couldn't have the, the blood on their hands. God just made, he just, they, they, it was the balance of powers, the priest, prophet, the king, and Jesus was all three of those. Why is that important ultimately? I mean, I could go on, there's tons of scriptures on this passage, Genesis 14, 17 to 20 if you want to read the story of Melchizedek came from that order because he was both a priest and a king and Jesus is the eternal priest and king in other words when you give your life to him he has promised you a couple of things that he will rule and reign over your life and you never have to worry about your enemies ever again and two he can save you forever you'll never lose your salvation and he's going to pray for you for all of eternity it's a pretty big deal actually might want to write that one down because so many people doubt their salvation. From that argument alone, there is no possible way that you would lose it. It's guaranteed, done deal, in the books, forever. 
No one's just going into heaven trying, you know, that doesn't like you is trying to flip through the book to try to get the eraser and you know, erase your name out. There's no possible way. That book is locked, sealed, done. And if your name is in there, it's a done deal. And by the way, your name was put in there before you're even born, before the foundations of this world. Verse five, and we're coming to a close here. Verse five, the, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. That's crazy. Why don't you turn here real quick to, uh, let's talk about the end times. Turn to Revelation 16. This is when we get Robert Sawyer really excited. He loves the end times. And it says, and, and they said to the mountains, oh, let's just read the whole thing. This is awesome. I love this one. Verse 12, I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. I mean, it's just, you know, you get this image of just, you shake the tree and all of a sudden, all these figs come out. You just shake the earth and poof, all these stars are falling from the skies. I mean, that's pretty cool. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men of the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains. People are terrified. And listen to this. And they said to the mountains, and to the rocks, fall on us. Hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne, that's Jesus, and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who is able to stand? Have you ever been to Colorado? Yeah? Have you ever been to, like, have you ever been to Patagonia? <laughs> Much cooler place probably, huh? I mean, you've seen pictures, maybe you've seen mountains size of at least 15,000 plus, right? Maybe some of here even more. In Japan, you saw the famous mountain. People are saying, I would rather deal with that mountain falling on top of me than deal with the Lamb of God and his wrath. Now you tell me if the wrath of God is not going to be a pretty serious thing. You'd rather deal with a, a mountain being crushed on you. Just take me out, annihilate me, than to deal and to face you without salvation. That's crazy. He's saying that. It'll shatter kings. The next time you're intimidated of leaders even world leaders that maybe are perhaps are even our enemies here in the States. Those world affairs, they matter to some degree. Of course they do. They have major implications on all of us. But he will shatter every single one who did not belong to him. And why do you think those nations hate God? They don't want this. They don't want this in their country. They don't want Psalm 110 to be preached from the pulpit. They don't want their people to believe 
that their leader is going to be literally shattered and he would wish that a mountain would fall on top of him? (laughs) No way. No way. And then verse 6, he will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpse. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. And he will drink from the brook by the wayside. Oh, Jesus is refreshed. He's not intimidated by any enemy. He's completely satisfied. Therefore, he will lift his head. He's got nothing to be ashamed of. And nor do you, if you're part of his kingdom. Look, on the way to Tampa, I was sitting, uh, we had, I don't know how many students, we had maybe, I don't know, five, six students in, as we were driving in, uh, in the car And we were all talking and fellowshipping or whatever. And Jamie, uh, I was just asking her questions about, hey, how's college ministry and what's going on in your life and how can I speak into it, whatever. And I noticed on her dashboard, she's got something that says, what are we doing this for? I said, what does that mean? Why'd you put that there? Who told you to put that there? And she said, you know what? I, I just need to be reminded of this every day of my life. Why am I doing this? Why am I investing in college students? You might be thinking, you know, hey, it's, it's to, to reach college students. It's to see that they would be saved and they would be transformed and they would walk with God and they would, they would be uh, uh, pure and righteous and holy and all those things. I said, you know what? Uh, vision is even higher than that. It's to live for the glory of God. Whose glory are you living for? There's no possible way you could say, I mean, you know the right thing to say, right? To live for the glory of God, to live for his glory. But how in the world can you possibly say that without actually looking at his glory in the scriptures? Without experiencing his glory from the scriptures, knowing who God is, why would you want to even give your life to this God you don't even know? This is Jesus. This is actually who he is. And when you meet with him in your room, this is who he is. It's incredible. Jesus is man. He is born of a descendant in Romans 1, 3, according to the flesh. Luke 2, 52, kept increasing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Hebrews 2, 12, or 2, 14 says, since children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. He experienced the full range of emotions, joy, grief, love, compassion, amazement, anger. He became hungry, He was thirsty like you, tired. He experienced pain. He experienced all those things. Yet he was without sin. Jesus, it says here in in Hebrews 2.17, had to be made like his brethren in all things. Why? Because he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. He become like us in our way, without sin, perfect, spotless lamb of God so that you might be made right with him. It couldn't be sinner for sinner. He never sinned. But yet at the same time, he's God. In John 1, 1, 14, Jesus was God. He's the word made flesh. John 8, 58, he took for himself the sacred name of God, Yahweh. He took that name, I am, when he said to his opponents, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. John 8, 59, the religious leaders attempted to stone him for blasphemy. Why? Because he claimed to be God. 
John 10, you talk to a Muslim, and he'll say, oh, no, there's, there's no scripture where he claimed to be God. Are you kidding me? You don't know your Bible. We just spent the last 40 minutes just going over the fact that Jesus is God. There is zero excuse for them in the end. John 20, verse 28 to 29, Thomas, Thomas addressed him as God, and look at what happened. Jesus accepted his worship. That would have been blasphemy. He could have been stoned to death, killed, if he had accepted worship, if he was not God. Philippians 2, 6, that famous passage, Jesus existed in the form of God. Colossians 2, 9, in him is the fullness of deity, dwells in bodily form. Titus 2, 13, Jesus is our great in God and Savior. Paul knew that. 2 Peter 1.1, Jesus is our God and Savior. Hebrews 1.8, God the Father said to Jesus, your throne, O God, will be forever and ever. It will have no end. No human being has a throne that will never end. The Old Testament names that were used as God, like Yahweh, but then they were used in reference to Christ in the New Testament. That was from Isaiah 6, 5, Yahweh. And then John 12, it says that, he, says that I, he, he's, he calls himself I am. Also, uh, he is a shepherd, a judge, holy one, first and last. I can't read all these scriptures. Alpha and Omega, he's the light, Lord of the Sabbath, Savior, pierced one, mighty God, Lord of Lords, Redeemer, Lord of glory. You tell me he's not God. You are blind. Jesus possesses the incommunicable attributes of God, meaning those that are very unique to God, not man. That's what it means, eternity, omnipresence, omniscience. He's everywhere at all times. He's with that person in the bedroom. He's also in that person at work. He's in this person over here at church. He's in that person on the other side of the world. He sees everything. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's immutable. He cannot change. He's full of glory. He's absolutely sovereign over all things. Jesus Christ also did the works that only God can do, like in creation, giving life, forgiving sin, being providential over all creation, and then sustaining the earth, holding it up. He has one bad moment. We're all falling at a million miles an hour. The only reason why you could sit in that chair and enjoy a day like today is because he is gracious, sovereign, sustaining you right now. Your breath, very breath. If he just says, be done, you're done in a moment. And we know that happens all the time. Jesus accepted worship. He never refused it. He is holy. Spoke with authority. John seven thirty six. Jesus displayed supernatural power. He walked on water, healed the, the sick, raised the dead, cast out demons. Jesus manifested God's love Mercy, kindness, compassion, justice, judgment, and wrath. So look, as we close here, let's just go back real quick to Mark and see this last line here, Mark 12. Because I think we all need to respond. We couldn't possibly listen to a message like this and just sit in our seats as if nothing happened. I love what it says here. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And listen to this. And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. Last time we see something like this in the scriptures, I think it was kind of interesting. In Mark 6, 20, if you remember for Herod, it says here, for Herod was afraid of John, John the Baptist, who is the forerunner of Christ, repeat, or, uh, or, uh, preaching repentance in the desert. 
It says here, knowing that he was righteous and holy man, he kept him safe. He was worried. He had fear of man. Remember, we, we talked about that months and months ago. He says, and when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. To be saved is not just to listen to Christ, but to believe in him, to trust him, and to obey him. It's interesting how after Jesus, <laughs> I don't know if he went through all of one, Psalm 110, he could have. The gospel writers only take what we need to know. But certainly we have Psalm 110 before our eyes now to exposit. But after reading that and looking at that and seeing how clear it is that how they were mistaken, how they thought that the Messiah was just a mere human being, oh no, they were wrong. He's not just a mere human being. He's God. And you can't possibly sit in that seat and just say, that was nice. Do you remember what C.S. Lewis said? He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. Who is he for you today? Who is he for you today? And maybe perhaps even a question is, who needs to hear this message today? Who do you need to tell about Jesus today that he truly is God and you need to answer to him? Or maybe just to comfort people and say, look, he is he's sovereign Lord. He's, he's, he's the ruler of the nations. He's gonna crush our enemies. Which side are you on? Because it says here in Ezekiel 33, 31 to 32, they were just listening but not doing anything about it. Please don't be those people. Because the fundamental question is, is who is Christ? And what is my relationship to him? Father, we thank you for giving us your word is so clear. Psalm 110 is just a magnificent, towering passage. A beauty. Powerhouse. Showing us that you are both God and man. Both king and priest both one to forgive our sins and able to sustain our salvation by praying for us. We may have slips and falls, but you will sustain us to the end. And it is clear also that you are king, that you are sovereign, that you are Lord. Jesus cannot just be your savior, but he must be your Lord in order for you to be saved. So Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for this passage. We thank you, Lord, that the Holy Spirit is convicting, assuring in this room, even this morning. And may you do that. May you save souls that only you can do. And may you sustain souls. And may you bring them all the way to glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.